The outcome of the war depends on Second Army being victorious on the Somme. Despite the current enemy superiority in artillery and infantry, we have got to win this battle. The large areas of ground that we have lost in certain places will be attacked and wrested back from the enemy just as soon as the reinforcements which are on the way arrive. For the time being, we must hold our current positions without fail and improve on them by means of minor counterattacks. I forbid the voluntary relinquishment of positions. Every commander is responsible for making each man in the army aware about this determination to fight it out. The enemy must be made to pick his way forward over corpses. General Fritz von Bailov, Commander, German 2nd Army, The Somme, 3rd July, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 11, Psalm the Grind, part 1. Thanks again for your patience between episodes as I work through my lengthy grad school assignment list. In the meantime, I continue to hear from listeners and I am so grateful for the feedback. Thanks so much for taking the time out to respond. It really is the best part of this project. And I have to share an outstanding comment I received from listener Keith recently on listening to the podcast. Uh, He said, it's like having a super knowledgeable mate telling you something really interesting at the pub. Isn't that just awesome? So, real quick, let me do a a reviews plug. Uh, If you have enjoyed the Battles of the First World War podcast so far please take a few moments to review the podcast on iTunes. The more reviews, the more visible the podcast becomes, and that will drive the podcast higher up on the iTunes rankings. iTunes reviews are a great, free, and easy way to really help the podcast flourish. Also, if you would like to help support the podcast with a financial contribution to help run and maintain it, there is a PayPal button right on the website where you can make a donation of your choice. The website is www.firstworldwarpodcast.com. I'd like to thank everyone who has already contributed. And finally, the BFWWP is now on Stitcher. All right, all right. Let's get back to the trenches. As we ended last episode, so we'll begin with this one. Following the blood-soaked day of failed assaults and modest successes on the 1st of July, 1916, British Expeditionary Force Commander-in-Chief General Sir Douglas Haig, British 4th Army Commander General Sir Henry Rawlinson, and the men of the British 4th Army's command tried to figure out what to do next. Along their front, All attacks between Fricourt and Goncourt had resulted in unprecedented massacres of British men. From Fricourt on east to where British trenches joined those of the French, 
there had been much better going. Haig, Rawlinson, and other staff officers didn't fully realize the extent of the losses their army had taken on that first day of the Battle of the Somme. It would be years before anyone would know. Haig thought losses to be around 40,000 and, quote, cannot be considered severe in view of numbers engaged and the length of front attacked, end quote, as he wrote in his diary. He was, however, displeased with how things had gone north of Tietval, particularly in 8th Corps' sector. On the evening of the 1st, Haig brought in General Sir Hubert Goff and had him take command of 10th and 8th Corps north of Tietval under the new command of the British Reserve Army. The Reserve Army was the UK's newest field army, and the units contained in it were to exploit any success to be found on the Somme. But, besides some bureaucratic shuffling, what to do? Should they push at Tietfall Spur again, it being the land formation so desperately needed to ensure success for the offensive? Or should they continue pushing at Fricourt and other points east of there, thus joining the French in a successful breach of the German trench lines from Fricourt all the way south to Assevillers? Rawlinson wanted to press on where they'd had success. He believed the Germans had been stretched by the first day's assaults and hadn't yet had time to bring in reserves. Now was the time to keep pushing. But as the Tietfall Spur really should be taken first, he ordered Goff to attack with his new corps on July 3rd. But Haig stepped in and canceled the operation. Haig was stuck on what to do. After killing the Reserve Army's proposed push, he gave in and admitted he was at a loss as to where to go next. He and his generals needed to, grudgingly, consult with their French allies as to what next steps should be taken. So the Brits linked up with French Army Commander-in-Chief Joseph Joffre and French Groupe d'Armée du Nord Commander General Ferdinand Foch on the 3rd of July. The meeting did not go well. Joffre wanted and ordered Haig to go after Tiepfal and its high ground. In Joffre's view, it was time for the adults to take charge. Haig had decided he wanted to go after success where they'd already found it, namely east of Fricourt, and incidentally where they could work more closely with the adjacent French. It was already destined to be a tense meeting. The French took any British hesitation as proof they were trying to back out of their commitment. But now Joffre blew his top and screamed at Haig. Literally. Haig to his credit, reportedly kept himself together but turned colder and colder the more Joffre shot fireworks out of his ears, and possibly somewhere else too. Coolly, the Scotsman informed his French ally that he was responsible to the British government for what his army would do and how they would do it. No one else. Tempers eventually cooled, and both Haig and Joffre grudgingly acknowledged they'd put their differences aside and work together better. This had consequences for the Somme offensive, though. 
the British Fourth Army would now focus its efforts between Fricourt and Montauban, with an eye towards grinding in a northeast direction towards the German second line situated on Bazentin Ridge between Bazentin-les-Petits and Longueval villages. To the north, the reserve army would try to outflank the devilish problem that was Tietval by going for Pozier village to the southeast of Tietval. Its direction of attack was roughly northeast as well. The French 6th Army, however, as we shall see momentarily, was aiming east and working at clearing the Flaucourt Plateau. This meant that the two allied armies would be pulling away from each other in the field, each fighting his own Battle of the Somme. But this was the plan. Due to the British leadership not being sure on what to do next, it would be days before the 4th Army would launch new operations against the Germans. But the French, to their immediate south, had no such mixed feelings. They knew exactly what they were doing. Winning. They planned to keep on doing just that. General Ferdinand Foch's plan for the French part of the push on the Somme was to use the French 10th Army south of Fayol's 6th Army, to help reinforce the success Fayol's poilus were having. Very quickly, two more infantry corps were moved into the battle space. A cavalry corps, acting as a mix of scouts and mounted infantry, was also brought in to move ahead of the infantry and seize any vital terrain or bridges. Among the common French poilu and tirailleurs, there was a sense that they were finally getting the upper hand on the Bosch. The evidence lay before them, and it was intoxicating in its meaning. The French had ripped an eight-mile-wide hole in the German front line south of the River Somme. Ahead of the French, according to forward patrols and fighter pilots up above, much of the Flaucourt Plateau lay empty, the Germans were rushing every single man who could hold a rifle towards the area, but units south of the Somme had been authorized to pull back to the bend of the river in front of Peron by General von Belov's chief of staff. And now the German third position, running from Biache village to La Maisonnette, was being desperately and fully manned. Fayol's 6th Army kept pushing. South of the Somme, French artillery pounded the German second position trenches and on the 2nd of July, the next assault was launched. The ruins of Fries village finally fell to the colonial troops of the 2nd DIC. Admin note, in episode 7, I said that Fries fell on the 1st of July, but uh, apparently I was very much incorrect. Sorry about that. To the south of Fries, German resistance at Herbicourt collapsed just 30 minutes after the French infantry attack was started. South of Herbicourt, the Germans dug in inside Assevier village, put up a sharper fight, successfully parrying two French attacks. Fighting there was fierce, but Poilus forced the enemy Frontschwein out the next day. Ferrier and Flaucourt villages were next. The first was empty of Germans, and taken practically with no fight. Flaucourt had a few Germans in it and a few abandoned artillery pieces. The Tirailleurs and Poilus seized it all. 
By the 3rd of July, as Generals Haig and Joffre screamed slash cold-faced each other over what to do next north of the Somme, the colonial soldiers of the 3rd and 2nd Division d'Infanterie Coloniale had seized their final objectives. Some 5,000 Germans were being processed in French rear areas as prisoners, and dozens of artillery pieces had been taken. To make the feeling of success even stronger, French cavalry could now be seen riding forward into the Flaucourt Plateau south of the Somme. It was a hell of a sight. Men in horizon bleu moving forward on horseback to find the enemy. It wasn't yet a return to maneuver warfare, but it was indeed semi-open warfare. Cavalry pushed forwards towards the far edge of the French advance and quickly discovered they were seven kilometers from the original jump-off line. They were patrolling the biggest chunk of French land retaken since 1914. Behind them, General Fayol remained cautious. As the cavalry pushed ahead, infantry regiments moved into the Flaucourt Plateau behind them. The guns were brought forward and new gun pits were dug for them. Supplies and water were pushed ahead behind the soldiers and the guns. Fayol wanted his poilus fed, rested, and supported as much as he could provide in these areas. He wanted to put his six armies back against the Somme and push the Germans to the south, but he worried that if he did so, he'd be pulling away from the British, which the Brits were getting to do to their French ally, ironically. If he pulled away, he feared the English would just totally slack off. The Poilus and Tirailleurs pushed up to the far edge of their gains, now encompassing the majority of the Flaucourt Plateau. They were in a good position. From here, they could look north across the river to see the Comble Plateau, on which sat Comble Village. It was in this area where the French could see land not yet obliterated by artillery and could thus see the muzzle flashes of German guns hidden in woods. They could also see the line of white chalk mounds that showed where the Germans were frantically digging to improve their third position lines. In some places, the third position trench lines were still a work in progress. That progress was halted as French artillery, having been rushed forward to new positions and resupplied, started raining down hell on the Germans. On the 4th of July, the French attacked again, hoping to maintain the momentum of the last day's attacks. French artillery rained down a withering storm of fire on enemy-held villages and positions, supported by observation aircraft and tethered balloons that helped direct fire. The earth rumbled and groaned under the punishing barrage. Villages shook as they were destroyed chunk by chunk. The woods fell as shell bursts blew apart trees and the men huddling under them. Men of the Moroccan division attacked towards the Santerre plain south of the Flaucourt Plateau, slamming into the villages of Belois en Santerre and Estrelle. German machine guns cut swathes into the attackers at Belois, but it wasn't enough to stop them. Belois fell. The Germans counterattacked later in the day, setting off an all-night fight for the village. South of Belois, Estrella village was seized from the Germans. German troops immediately 
counterattacked there and retook half of the village. The next day, the Poilus clawed back most of the village, but it was a brutal struggle. The Germans were now streaming into the battle zone south of the Somme by the thousands. The German army command was throwing every unit it had available into the gaping maw of the Somme. And then, a pause. New French divisions were rotated onto the battlefield. The 72nd DI, a unit that had been obliterated during the first days of Verdun, see episode 2 of the Battle of Verdun podcast, the 72nd DI now shouldered the southern bank of the Somme on its left and the fresh 16th Division Colonial d'Infanterie on its right. The 16th DCI relieved the 2nd DCI, with that division having done magnificent work. The Moroccan division, bloodied but still ready to do more, took over for the 3rd DCI. After the rest and refit, a fresh dose of hell. French artillery now began pounding the German lines running between Biache, the La Maisonnette suburb of Peronne, and Barleau. Delays and attack schedules came when summer rain also pounded the battlefield, bringing back the old enemy that attacked both sides. Mud. The churned up earth of the shell-plowed fields turned into a quagmire that right away began slowing down all movement. So with the rain, the French kept up their bombardment for 30 hours before the squads of muddy Horizon Blue went over the top at 2 p.m. on the 9th of July. An hour and a quarter later, La Maisonnette had fallen. Here, German troops pretended to surrender and then turned on their French captors and attacked them. That, in turn, sent a surge of angry rage through French units that turned into new orders. No more prisoners. On the 10th, the Germans converged on La Maisonnette from five different directions. Each attack was shot down by the Poilus. Outside La Maisonnette, Frenchmen retook Bois Blaise, or Blaise Wood, but the Germans began leveling the wood with artillery. Two French regiments were wiped out during the fighting at La Maisonnette, and the advance here stopped. To the south, Barleau village was also assaulted, but the village sat in a bowl with all of the high ground around, held by the Germans. The French infantry got up to the outskirts of Barleau, but with increasingly stiff resistance, constant German counterattacks, and ever more artillery coming down on the Poilus, the advance on the Somme began to grind to a halt. And with that, the enthusiasm of the Poilus also ground to a halt. Les Cafards, what French troops called the pervasive fatalism that gripped the men of the trenches, began to send its tentacles back into Frenchmen's hearts. Having felt they were pushing back and giving it to the Bosch, but good, the increasing German defense showed them that this was not going to be the game-changing battle of the war. It was going to be another slog, through the shells, through the mud, and through the swollen and putrefying bodies. French troops south of the Somme now sat in a deep salient where they could not show their heads and were constantly under shell fire. 
Sensing that his army was at its limit, Fayol ordered his men to dig in and hold where they were. Now it would be up to the French north of the Somme and the British to do something. The Germans, by the 10th of July, continued to pour men into the Somme front. Their artillery was coming back online and adding to the firestorm of shells that was now constantly coming down. German defenses were becoming more integrated as the Somme Kempfer soldiers dug and kept on digging. Where digging wasn't possible, they simply occupied lines of shell craters and held those. A week and a half into the Battle of the Somme, the Germans were getting it together. And at the two-week mark, they'd be firing on all cylinders, with reinforcing units flowing in and giving battle for every inch of ground. But on the night of the 1st to the 2nd of July, it was a different story at the German 2nd Army's headquarters. General von Bailov and his staff were, quite understandably, freaking the hell out. North of the Somme, the Allies had disintegrated German lines south of Fricourt and seized much of the first position. North of Fricourt, the enemy had been repulsed, but they had penetrated at Schwaben Redoubt, and everywhere else the situation was fluid and tenuous. South of the Somme, the German army had been effectively wiped out, and in its place there was an eight-mile-wide hole through which French soldiers were rushing in. Von Bailov knew his job, as did his staff, but knowing exactly what was going on at all points of a 25-mile-wide attack front was fairly impossible. Immediately, the German 12th Infantry Division, based at Cambrai, began rushing towards the Somme. German 5th ID rushed towards the southern Somme sector to help plug the breach in the line. But more local reserves were the first ones to run into the firestorm, and in the German frontline trace, there was quickly a jumble of units who didn't recognize the terrain and were unsure many times of where adjacent units were. In the frantic rush to stop the French breakthrough south of the Somme and the heavy British pressure at La Boisselle, Fricourt, Mametz and Montauban, men were just thrown into the battle. In many cases, however, the battered units already holding what remained of the front line would have to stay in place until fresh battalions could relieve them. The Germans, always considered the better soldiers, now proved that, quote, the British army did not have a monopoly in tactically unsophisticated assaults, end quote. As Professor William Philpot writes in Bloody Victory, The Sacrifice on the Somme. When units of the 12 ID reached the Somme on 2nd July, they were pressed into an attack on the British positions at Montauban. The problem was that the British could see them coming. Artillery rang down on two battalions of German troops as they pushed towards the ruined village. There, they were met by machine gun and rifle fire that left hundreds of Germans lying on the shell-torn fields. The attack failed miserably. General Erich von Falkenhayn, commander of all German forces, immediately came down to von Bailov's headquarters at Saint-Quentin. Von Falkenhayn lectured von Bailov on how to conduct his defense something the latter senior officer was well capable of figuring out on his own. 
Von Falkenhayn was also furious that German units south of the Somme had been authorized to retreat behind the bend of the river at Peron. Every inch of ground lost to the British and French was to be immediately retaken, without fail and without regard for losses. Even if only a squad was left in a battalion sector, that squad was to counterattack right away. It was General Meyer Grunert, von Belos, chief of staff, who had given the order for that retreat south of the Somme. I would guess, though, that von Belov had to at least have known of the order and have given it his implicit consent, if nothing else. Von Falkenhayn no doubt knew this, and so struck at von Belov by firing Grunert on the spot. The message sent to von Belov was clear, and the next day, the second army commander sent the order that was the opening quote for this episode. Von Falkenhayn's obstinate policy would have severe consequences for the German army. Casualty numbers began to skyrocket as the policy of immediate counterattacks took effect. With the real need to contain British penetrations of the front line and the French breakthrough to the south, the counterattack policy no doubt led to rushed decisions where companies, battalions, and regiments were pushed into the ever-growing artillery storm to retake land they didn't know and hadn't had time to reconnoiter. It was chaos for the Germans for those first days of the Somme. The chaos and mass casualties that defined the German experience of the first days of the Somme were recorded by the historian of the elite Lair Infantry Regiment, which was destroyed trying to hold back the British between Ovier, Pozier, and Contomaison after La Boisselle was taken on the 2nd of July. The following is a report on the situation with the 1st Battalion of the Lair Regiment. Quote, so, in four days, and not counting losses in the machine gun company, the total amounted to nine officers, one officer deputy, and 685 other ranks. Again and again, the questions were asked. Where is this soldier? Where was so-and-so left? Who saw him last and where? Yes, where were they? all those whose name had to be entered in the nominal role under that unholy heading, missing. That was a dreadful word for the parents and the siblings, for all relations whose thoughts back in the homeland were directed day by day and hour by hour, waking or dreaming, towards the hoped-for safe return of their father, uncle, brother, son, husband, or grandson. End quote. Von Falkenhayn seemed to now recognize that this was the Allied counter-response to Verdun he'd been waiting for since February. He ordered four infantry divisions and 38 artillery batteries to move to the Somme for battle. Some of those units would have to come from the Verdun sector, which from the first had already been in a defensive posture. So the push on the Somme was already having its intended effect. Von Falkenhayn reorganized sectors of responsibility on his side of the line. 
from Gomcor to the Albert Bapaum Road, became General von Stein's 14th Reserve Army Corps sector. From the Albert Bapaum Road to the Somme became the responsibility of General von Gossler and his 6th Army Corps. South of the Somme, General von Kvast, 17th Army Corps, worked to hold back the French. As a further testament to the confusion of the first two weeks of the battle, von Kvast soon realized he had units from 11 different divisions operating under his jurisdiction. Within two weeks, von Falkenhayn reshuffled responsibility at the army level as well. First Army would have the battlefront north of the Somme with von Bailov commanding. Second Army would now be south of the Somme with General Max von Galwitz commanding. Von Galwitz was another highly competent and capable commander. And for those of you who have listened to episode 5 of the Battle of Verdun podcast, he was the general who led the brutal battles for Le Mordom in Côte 304 and later remarked, at this rate, we'll be in Verdun by 1920. The Germans continued to pull ever more divisions towards the Somme sector, and the fresh units helped to bolster the German second position as the first days of July passed. With every day, German resistance increased, although casualties also increased at an ever-increasing rate as every shell hole line, every lost trench position, had to be immediately counterattacked and retaken. Within those first two weeks, elements of 20 different divisions were fighting and dying on the Somme. The plan to relieve pressure on the French at Verdun was working. And the British after the somewhat successful but largely unpleasant meeting with the French on the 3rd of July, got themselves settled on the best way to get to the business of grinding down the German army. Seeing as they'd had success in the sector from Fricourt to Montauban, Rawlinson and Haig decided to keep pressing there. The overall plan was to continue pushing up Caterpillar Valley in order to get close to the Bosch's second line of trenches. From there, the 4th Army would then hit that second position, which was dominated by Bazantin Ridge. To assist in this general push, the new reserve army would cover 4th Army's left flank by pushing towards the village of Pozier, thus helping 4th Army out to the south and circumventing Tietval and its commanding heights to the north. Ammunition supply was becoming a cause for concern, but it was decided that they needed to keep attacking. More ammunition was coming in. Rawlinson and Haig wanted to keep constant pressure on the Germans, thereby drawing them into the fight and tying them down so their divisions could be destroyed. But as we're about to see, for the period of the 3rd of July to the upcoming attacks on the 14th, Pressure devolved into smaller fights against local points that needed to be secured for a better jumping-off point. Intense pressure would be applied to the Somme front, but only on small sections of the front where the Germans could successfully, although not easily, hold the Tommies back as their second position was fortified. With British forces not attacking everywhere along 
their front, the defending Germans would have just enough time to rush more and more men and more and more artillery to the killing zone and get their defense reset. On the 2nd of July, 4th Army threw in a second assault towards La Boiselle. And on the 3rd, Bernafay Wood, east of Montauban's ruins, was occupied with hardly a fight. From the 4th on, the British would be much more active, as general goals were now clearer and new units had been brought into the line. For the 4th Army to be ready to hit the German second position, three objectives would need to be cleared in order to have a secure jump-off line for the 3rd, 15th, and 8th Corps. These three objectives, from east to west, were Trones Wood, Mametz Wood, and the village of Contalmaison. These would need to be taken first before anything major could really have a hope of success. To the north, Reserve Army would strike at Ovier as flanking support. From the fourth on, the weather turned grayer and summer rains turned the battlefield into a mud pit. Nevertheless, attacks were pressed towards Contalmaison and on the fifth, Quadrangle Trench, one of the main defense lines in front of the village, was taken by the Brits. Contalmaison sat halfway up on the Fricor Spur, and the village was another example of the well-sighted German defense network. The dark tangle of Mamet's wood sat almost a mile to its east. To the west, a small patch of woods named Bailiff Wood enfiladed Contalmaison from the west. To the north lay Posier village. To the south lay quadrangle and wood trenches, part of a defense line that continued on up to the edge of Mamet's wood. Manning the village and its environs was the aforementioned Lair Regiment, which over the next days would bleed to death trying to hold off the enemy. BEF guns pounded the area, adding to the din to the south and spreading flashes of gunfire further along the attack front. Tommies of the 23rd, 17th, and 7th Divisions went over the top and went after it. Up the muddy slope went the British, and they fought their way into the center of the village. The Germans, with their policy of no retreat and no surrender, immediately counterattacked twice. Then they just began leveling the ruins with heavy shellfire, and all British progress was stopped. Bailiff Wood was assaulted, but German machine gun teams in Contalmaison stopped any British movement there as well. With interlocking fields of fire, the Germans proved themselves a tough nut to crack here, and days of confused, muddy, and bitter fighting followed. The British 7th Division, fighting in the front line since the 1st of July, was exhausted and replaced with the 38th Welsh Division. By the 10th of July, British troops attacked from the east, throwing the Germans off guard. The smoking ruins of Contalmaison finally fell that day. East of the ruins of Contalmaison, on the 10th of July, the battle for Mamet's wood was also in its third day. But here, there was no end yet in sight. We will not get into Mamet's wood here. An entire episode 
will be dedicated to this battle within the battle so we can get a full picture of just how awful these woods fights were. Northeast of Montauban, plans had seen a delay when French troops had to retake Favier Wood from counterattacking Germans. Working to support the Tommies of the 30th Division, who were ordered to seize Trones Wood, the French 20th Iron Corps on the British right would assault the villages of Hardecourt and M in its sector. On the 3rd, French artillery had already started the work of raising the German defenses ahead of their poilus. When the rains came, the bombardment was just extended. The Germans were to know no respite from the drum fire. Now to the British third objective. Named Trones Wood after some staff officer misread the actual Bois des Troncs on French area maps, the wood was a 1,400-yard-long, pear-shaped thicket of dense woods that had not been maintained since the war had come to the Somme. The undergrowth on the forest floor was tangled and thick, making movement and visibility extremely difficult for an attacker. Of course, the German defenders had the wood prepared for a fight. Both the British 30th Division's attack and the French assaults to the right kicked off a day late on the 8th. Despite the now ongoing assaults on Contemaison and at Mamet's Wood, these new attacks were still were not enough pressure to break the German line. The first attack at Trons Wood was scythed down by the Germans. In the French sector, the 11th DI went over the top and outflanked the ruins of Hem. After a vicious fight that showed the Germans were getting it together, the Poilus wrenched the village from the enemy's hands. Five separate German counterattacks struck at Hem, but the Frenchmen hung on to their new possession. Next to the 11th DI, the 39th DI sent its Poilus running towards Hardecourt. French artillery again proved its worth by having devastated the defenders, and Poilus overran the village. Any further gains, though, were stopped by German machine gun teams operating from Trons Wood. At Trons, it would take six attacks made over the next five days to capture it. On the 12th, having lost 2,000 men over the last four days and having been in the line since the first the British 30th Division was pulled out and relieved by the 18th Division. The men of the 18th would finally take Trones two days later by killing everything that moved ahead of them. By the 13th of July, with the three objectives behind them and secure, the British 4th Army was now in place to launch its next attack on the German 2nd Line. In jerks and starts, the British were grinding their way forward on the southern sector of the Somme, although the period of the 2nd of July through the 14th saw Rawlinson's army bleed out another 25,000 casualties. A lot of this was because the attacks made at Contomaison, Maumets, and Trones Woods had been piecemeal, battalion-sized assaults that had been uncoordinated and then easily fended off by the Germans. Sir Henry Rawlinson hasn't figured much into the scene this episode because he largely stayed out of it, 
opting to let his corps commanders do their work on their own. But without guidance from higher, we see the effects. The Germans absorbed the blows and continued blasting back. So we're going to leave it here for now. Next episode, we'll take a look at Mamet's Wood. And then we'll move on to the attacks on Bazantown Ridge that took place on the 14th of July, 1916. So I've already plugged the, the reviews and how they greatly helped the podcast. But I, I also wanted to just take a moment to point out that in the past few days, uh, I have received some really awesome reviews on iTunes. And I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who has um, uh, taken the time to to write a review. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. I mean, these reviews are, are good as gold for, for this podcast. And thank you so, so much. Um, so with that, any questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up through the website, www.firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook or on the Twitter at, at World War One Podcast. And these days I tend to spend more time on Twitter. Uh, it's, it's pretty easy to use. Um, as always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. Talk to you again soon. Take care.